Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with a breaking news CNN exclusive. The special counsel investigating Hunter Biden is now using a Los Angeles grand jury as part of the investigation into the business dealings of President Biden's son. That is according to sources who tell CNN that President Biden's brother, James Biden, is among the people who have gotten a subpoena in recent weeks. This major development comes just as sources Tell CNN that a separate special counsel, the one investigating President Biden's handling, handling of classified documents, is not expected to bring any charges in that case. Let's get straight to CNN's Paula Reed, who is breaking this news for us right now. Paula, walk us through exactly how this new grand jury in Los Angeles is being used. Well, Jake, multiple sources tell CNN that multiple witnesses have been subpoenaed to provide testimony and documents for the investigation into Hunter Biden's personal finances. Now, one of the individuals who has received one of these subpoenas is his uncle, James Biden, his father, President Joe Biden's brother. Now, this is Hunter Biden's one-time business associate who could provide information that may be relevant to this investigation. At this point, it appears that they are focused on Hunter Biden's alleged failure to pay his taxes. Now, this was something that was supposed to be resolved by a plea deal that fell apart earlier this year. And at this point, it's unclear if they're investigating anything beyond that. But some of the alleged tax offenses occurred in Southern California, which is why this grand jury, which has previously not been reported, is significant and signals that the special counsel, David Weiss, may be considering bringing additional charges against Hunter Biden. Now, the special counsel has already brought gun charges against the president's son in Delaware and has previously used a grand jury in that state to gather evidence. But the fact that they're also using this grand jury in California is certainly notable because it signals that there could be additional charges. Now, representatives for Hunter Biden, for the special counsel, for the White House and James Biden have all declined to comment. Paula Reed, stick around. I want to bring in right now CNN's Caitlin Palance, who also helped break this reporting, as well as former federal prosecutor uh, Ellie Honig. Caitlin, how could this investigation in Los Angeles play into the other federal case in Delaware that Hunter Biden is facing? 
Jake, there's certainly going to be discussion of it in court in Delaware because, as Paula was explaining, there was that plea deal before a judge in Delaware that fell apart. Now this grand jury activity in California signals that there could be new charges or different charges brought against Hunter Biden. But his lawyers have already been quite clear in the court in Delaware, hey, we had a deal. And that deal was that you can't charge him with tax crimes elsewhere. And so we're very likely to see his lawyers argue to the judge in Delaware, he's immune from an indictment, uh, that he can't be charged elsewhere. He can't be charged on financial matters or anything else that special counsel David Weiss might be looking into at this time. And then the other thing that it tells us, Jake, is that we're watching this case in Delaware, this federal case move forward. And Hunter Biden's team is incredibly aggressive. They want to take it to trial. They're very experienced trial lawyers. They want to fight the facts. They want to fight the law. They want to claim that Donald Trump initiated a vindictive prosecution. They even want to subpoena Trump, Bill Barr, his attorney general, and others from the Justice Department. We just learned that yesterday in that case. So whatever they're doing there, they're also going to be very aggressive to fight whatever may or may not come out of this grand jury in California as well. Ellie Honig, how how worried should Hunter Biden and his lawyers be about this? A grand jury, I mean, that's some pretty serious business. It is, Jake. And there's legitimate cause for concern here for Hunter Biden and his legal team. First of all, as Paula and Caitlin said, he's already under indictment in the District of Delaware for various offenses relating to firearms possession while he was an addict back in 2018. That's already enough of a problem. Now he faces the possibility of a second and separate indictment coming out of California relating to his finances and taxes. And on that note, Jake, when there was a previous deal in place, this deal between DOJ and Hunter Biden, they agreed that Hunter Biden had intentionally and criminally failed to pay over $1.1 million in income taxes. Now, DOJ can't use that agreement against him, but they presumably had evidence of at least that much of a crime. So it could get worse for Hunter Biden. It will depend on the outcome of this investigation. But Jake, anytime anyone's looking at one federal charge, just statistically, the odds are stacked against them. And if this becomes two separate federal charges, then it's that much more of a problem for Hunter Biden. And Paula, uh, you also have this brand new reporting that the special counsel, uh, when it comes to President Biden and the classified documents case involving him, uh, that the special counsel is not likely to bring charges against the president. That's right. We reported several weeks ago that it was not looking like anyone would be charged in that investigation. And today, multiple sources familiar with this probe tell us the charges are not expected to be filed as part of this probe. Instead, the special counsel, Robert Hur, is expected to issue a report that we are told uh, is likely going to be quite detailed. We've had multiple uh, sources in and around this investigation talk about just how thorough Hur has been in this investigation, reaching out to witnesses multiple times, uh, going over issues again and again. We expect that this will be a detailed report laying out exactly how they conducted this investigation and what they learned. We also expect that it could be critical uh, of President Biden and his staff and how they handled these classified materials. Now, it's unclear exactly when this report uh, will go to the Justice Department, but at this point, uh, it appears they are aiming to do this by the end of the year, though I am told that timeline could slide. So I can already anticipate what we're going to hear uh, from other, well, specifically one other network, uh, Ellie Honig, that um, this is a double standard. Uh, that Donald Trump was charged and there's a federal case and indictments about his mishandling of classified documents and Joe Biden is not going to be charged. Uh, obviously, the cases are different. Ellie Honig, uh, explain uh, what you think about that. 
Well, Jake, first of all, important to keep in mind, Robert Hur is a conservative. He was a law clerk to Chief Justice William Rehnquist. He was nominated to be U.S. attorney in Maryland in 2017 by Donald Trump. So he's not some liberal or Joe Biden leaning prosecutor. Second of all, there are differences between these cases based on the indictment that we've seen of Trump and Mar-a-Lago and based on what we've seen from the public reporting, starting with knowledge and intent. We'll see, but presumably Robert Hur has found there was no evidence that Joe Biden had criminal knowledge and intent. Donald Trump has acknowledged publicly he knew he had those documents and he's alleged to have had criminal intent. Second of all, let's remember Donald Trump is charged with obstruction of justice now and the evidence set forth in the indictment is really quite overwhelming. In contrast, Joe Biden's team, they came forward with the documents. They were the ones who brought it to DOJ. So two very big, very crucial distinctions there. Caitlin, you've been following the Trump classified documents case for months. What are you watching in that case, given this news? Well, I'm watching really what is going to happen from this special counsel, a different special counsel than the one who's bringing the charges against Trump in Florida related to classified documents, because this special counsel, Robert Hur, he's going to release the report. Uh, as Paula says, it'll have the facts. It'll also have, you know, why are, why, why are they not charging people? They'll, that they will explain, but it'll give a window into the Justice Department's thinking on the law. And so whatever they're saying there, that matters because the Justice Department has to think through what do we do about classified documents that are found in the possession of high level former government officials? Uh, and what do how do we bring a case? How do we choose to bring cases? And so just having that insight into it is is going to be quite useful um, as we continue to think about the Trump case as it heads to trial. These reports in this era of special counsel do go into detail on eras of law that we just really have never seen the Justice Department show everything that they're thinking about in the same way that we get to whenever we get these reports out of special counsels. And so many trials, so little time. Ellie Honig, um, also this afternoon, uh, the New York appeals court judge uh, temporarily lifted the gag order that had been placed on Donald Trump and his attorneys in the civil fraud trial against Donald Trump. Um, the judge had ordered, uh, the judge in the case had uh, imposed a gag order after Trump had been attacking the judge's law clerk. Again, that's in the civil fraud trial. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, Jake, this is a very narrow gag order. The fact that the Court of Appeals has put it on hold tells me that they are being careful here. They're trying to respect Donald Trump's First Amendment right to speak. Now, Donald Trump, his history has shown in both of these cases that the moment a gag order is suspended to give him the benefit of the doubt, to allow him to appeal, he immediately goes out and violates it. Now, it's not technically a violation because it's suspended, but it would be a terrible idea and a terrible look, I think, for him now that that gag order is suspended to go back to attacking the judge's staff. I think it's a very narrowly crafted and fair gag order. All it does is protect vulnerable people who are just doing their jobs as court clerks. So we'll see if Donald Trump respects the spirit of this gag order. But the Court of Appeals is doing its best to give him a chance to appeal this case. And they are trying to respect his First Amendment rights here. But let's be honest, uh, Paula. I mean, this is a guy who is still attacking Paul Pelosi, the victim of, of a violent assault. Uh, you know, that's completely indecent, completely inhuman. Uh, he likely, I mean, if one had to take bets, will go back to attacking the judge's law clerk uh, for being biased, even though it's kind of a preposterous and inhuman thing to do. 
Yeah, and we know that because we've seen when the gag order is uh, put on hold in other cases, that's exactly what he does. He goes out and says things that he'd previously been barred from doing. Look, this is an incredibly uh, tricky issue. He has a First Amendment right. He is also the leading Republican candidate for the White House. His lawyers have categorized anything he says as political speech, uh, insisting that it deserves a heightened protection. But as the judge uh, in the January 6th case here in Washington has said, we can't have defendants just going out and attacking people for doing their job, uh, witnesses, uh, court clerks, uh, even prosecutors. So they have to do this really tricky dance between protecting uh, his right to criticize the process, uh, speak out about his innocence, but also protect people who are just showing up from work. Because as the special counsel has argued in their appellate uh, litigation over their gag order, uh, he has shown a pattern for years years and years, long before any of these cases, of identifying people, singling them out as adversaries, and then those people are targeted by threats and harassment. So they have to be able to protect people who are doing their job, but also allow him to speak out. We'll see what the appellate courts think of these gag orders. I mean, the problem is he says these things and it has the desired effect is that uh, we saw in, uh, from other Republicans talking about how members of Congress refused to vote to impeach him because they were afraid that violence would come their way. From We heard that, I think, from Mitt Romney's, the, the, the book about Mitt Romney. Paula, Caitlin, uh, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. I uh, really appreciate it. Coming up after all the lies, Republican Congressman George Santos has announced he will bow out. I'm not sure if we should take him at his word, though. He announced he will not run for re-election. This is only after today's damning new report from the Ethics Committee of Congress. That's right, Congress has an Ethics Committee. The committee report showed that he has used stolen campaign funds to splurge on vacations, uh, on Botox, on the website OnlyFans, often used for pornography. That's right, he used Republican campaign cash to splurge on gay pornography. But first, another breaking story. The Israeli military is releasing what it calls video evidence of an operational Hamas tunnel shaft at a hospital complex in Gaza. The images are just coming in. We're going to go live to Israel next. Stay with us. Breaking news in our world lead. Nearly two days after raiding Gaza's largest hospital, the Israel Defense Forces now say they have found an operational tunnel shaft leading to the sprawling complex, or under it, rather. Israel's army just shared this video from the Al-Shifa area, and although hospital officials have not commented, CNN has geolocated the video published by the IDF. Also near Al-Shifa today, the Israeli army announced it had found the corpse of one of the hostages previously kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th, 65-year-old Yehudit Weiss, who was kidnapped from Kibbutz Be'eri. Uh, during the horrific attacks on October 7th, Yehudit Weiss's death marks the second known hostage death. Meanwhile, new signs that Israel's fight against Hamas could be moving further south. Israel dropped leaflets on the southern part of the Gaza Strip earlier today, warning people there to, quote, head toward known shelters. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is in Ashkelon, just north of Gaza. Jeremy, let's start with what Israel says is new evidence of Hamas's command headquarters underneath al-Shifa. Tell us more about that. Well, Jake, the Israeli military says that it found a tunnel shaft that it says belongs to Hamas on the grounds of al-Shifa hospital. 
Uh, you can see in this video a hole uh, in, in the ground uh, that leads to what appears to be a tunnel. CNN can't independently verify this video, but what we have been able to do is geolocate this video to the Al-Shifa complex. You can see uh, in a freeze frame of this video that there is indeed a uh, couple of buildings that we have identified as being part of the Al-Shifa complex. One of the main buildings of the hospital appears to be about 30 meters away from this hole. And this is the first evidence that Israel has put forward in the nearly 48 hours since they first entered Al-Shifa complex of what they say is that underground tunnel infrastructure below this uh, hospital, which is Gaza's largest hospital. For weeks now, the Israeli military has been laying the groundwork for a potential ground operation inside Al-Shifa hospital. They have said that Hamas operates a very large command and control center below the complex. We haven't yet seen that command and control center, but this is the first evidence uh, that Israel has put forward that they say points to tunnel infrastructure below the Al-Shifa complex. The United States, Jake, has also backed up Israel's claims with President Biden just as, as recently as yesterday uh, saying that Hamas does indeed operate this command center. He said that that was a fact. And he also uh, accused Hamas of committing a war crime by having these underground tunnels below that complex. We also know that the Israeli military, of course, recovered uh, weapons uh, from uh, this complex. They showed us images of uh, AK-47s, grenades, ammunition, tactical vests, all of which they said they found inside the hospital. I, I believe they also, uh, the IDF also found the body of that 65-year-old hostage, uh, Yehudi Weiss, Weiss um, near Al-Shifa Hospital as well. It's still not clear um, how she died. Uh, what are you hearing from Israeli officials about about her death? Yeah, Jake, the Israeli military announcing tonight that they found her body uh, in a building adjacent to the hospital. So not on the hospital grounds, but near it, it appears. We don't know exactly where. And what we also don't know is exactly how she died. Yehudit Weiss was a 65-year-old uh, uh, woman who appears to have been kidnapped by Hamas, was taken into the Gaza Strip. And according to the spokesman for the Israel Defense Forces, uh, he says that she was murdered by terrorists in the Gaza Strip. Now, we don't know exactly when that happened, and he didn't provide any additional details of her death. Uh, at least now, Jake, her family, which has been dealing with so much uncertainty in recent weeks, knows uh, what her fate was, sadly. Jake. Jeremy Diamond in Ashkelon, thanks so much. Uh, let's bring in CNN's Nick Robertson, who's in Stirot, Israel, uh, east of Gaza. Uh, and Nick, does the IDF believe um, that this video published uh, and to put on social media of the tunnel uh, is enough proof uh, to, to justify the siege of the hospital? I don't know if they consider it enough proof to justify the siege because they say that it could take a few more days or weeks even to complete their search of the whole sprawling hospital complex. I think they feel that it's um, an indication that their suppositions, that their intelligence uh, about what was going on below the hospital has born uh, some, some factual reality, if you will. How extensive uh, the tunnels are isn't clear. We, we do know from talking to the IDF when we were at another hospital, the Al Rantisi, a couple of days ago with them, also in Gaza, by the way, that they, uh, it, that they put down robots in these tunnel systems. They open up a hole where they think the tunnel is, find the tunnel, put a robot in, and then send the robot off to go, to go search out the tunnels. So it is a, a long and slow process. But the very fact that they made such an emphasis 
that this car full of explosives that they say Hamas had been using on October the 7th, explosives, weapons, ammunition, um, was physically, they said, on top of where that tunnel shaft was. Um, it does seem to indicate that this, this, this for them, um, absolute connection between the shaft and Hamas, uh, and they believe there's a more extensive network. Separately, Israel's military dropped leaflets uh, over communities in southern Gaza today, warning uh, Palestinians to, quote, head toward known shelters that could, of course, uh, indicate a coming southern ground offensive. Um, Would that suggest that the, the mission is complete in the northern part of Gaza? Yeah, the IDF is indicating that they've got control, operational control in the western part of Gaza City itself. So that's pretty much half maybe of of the largest uh, urban center. They're still taking control of other areas north of Gaza, but they essentially they are saying that Hamas has lost their control of the north. So this does seem to indicate that they're potentially going to move south. They've said that they would move south. They said their intent is to take down all of Hamas. The only way to do that is to move into the south of the Strip. They've split the Strip by in two by having a sort of a line of forces in the middle. You know, but the difficulty, obviously, for the IDF, and they'll be aware of this as well, that Hamas will be hiding in that civilian population. But it's now essentially a double-density civilian population because so many people have moved from the north to the south, which puts us civilians in double jeopardy of harm as Hamas hides out behind them. And also, if they do come to harm, then their welfare is going to be more in jeopardy because there are so few hospitals, a deficit of hospitals now in, 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 Gaza, in Gaza Strip in its entirety. So this will be a much more uh, a difficult uh, area for the IDF to operate in because there are more civilians, Jake. We're just learning more, Nick, uh, about uh, more heavy U.S. weaponry uh, that has arrived in the region, um, such as additional Patriot missile systems. Uh, What might that indicate about the growing U.S. military presence in the region? Um, that this is beefed up, that all the systems that the, the U.S. Department of Defense had said a couple of weeks ago that they were sending to the regions, the Patriots and also the THAADs, the uh, sort of high-altitude uh, interceptor uh, rocket systems, that, these were, that they, were, they were sending a number. They're saying they're now all up and operational. They didn't say where they'd be, be placed. We do know that missiles are being used to strike U.S. forces inside Iraq and inside Syria. We do know that the United States allies Saudi Arabia has been part of the protection for Israel, um, intercepting missiles, long-range missiles and drones that are being fired out of Yemen. Um, Saudi Arabia has been a recipient and user of U.S. Patriot systems in the past. So um, I think it just shows you that the umbrella of security is being stretched out and we're being told it's operational. All right, Nick Robertson in studio. Thank you so much. Up next, Inside that scathing House Ethics Committee report on Republican Congressman George Santos of New York, the alleged trips he bought using campaign money. He also uh, used campaign money to to buy Botox and settle his own credit card debt and much, much more. Stick around. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. 
All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In our politics lead, no, Congressman Santos, you can't use campaign funds for Botox or for OnlyFans. Apparently that is advice that needs to be pointed out to members of Congress these days. This after a damning report from the House Committee on Ethics, which laid out a myriad of personal purchases from the congressman. He used his campaign funds. Let's list just a few of them. More than $3,000 for an Airbnb when Santos said he was off at the Hamptons. A hotel in Vegas when Santos said he was on his honeymoon. Purchases on OnlyFans, a porn website, and at Sephora. $1,400 at a spa with a note describing it as, quote, Botox. He used campaign funds to pay back personal credit card bills. CNN's Manu Raju has been diving into the report and takes a look now at how Santos' excuses for his purchases have changed over time. Hmm. He's been under scrutiny all year for the lies he's told about his past. And for the 23 federal criminal charges he's facing. I have no clue of what you guys are talking about. No. But now GOP Congressman George Santos could be expelled from the House. George Santos is a fraud. He should not be a member of Congress. This after a months-long investigation from the Bipartisan Ethics Committee, alleging criminal wrongdoing, saying he sought to fraudulently exploit every aspect of his House candidacy for his own personal financial profit. The panel finding that Santos blatantly stole from his campaign, including for travel and Botox, even making a payment to OnlyFans. Also alleging he reported fictitious loans and sustained it all through a constant series of lies. I think uh, the people of, of, of his district need, uh, need uh, representation, and they're not getting that right now. The damning report concludes that he knowingly filed false reports with the FEC, and made willful violations in financial disclosures with the House. The GOP chairman of the Ethics Committee, Michael Guest, planning to file a resolution to make Santos just the sixth House member in U.S. history to be expelled. That will be enough for members to be able to make a decision as to whether or not uh, they believe it would be proper to expel Representative Santos. In an interview with CNN this month, Santos acknowledged making mistakes in his filings. They said you made up your income. And that could be I, a problem for your ethics problem. That's, what happened? I mean, did you not list your income it, properly here? All I, all, I can say, all I can say is, first, no, that's not true. Second, uh, were there mistake-mates on those forms? I'm, now I know they were. Uh, was I 
were they malicious? No, I didn't understand how that worked. And I'm a new candidate and I'm sorry that like mistakes were made. And denying making fake loans to his campaign. Because one of the things they say is that there's a $500,000 loan that you made. I made, oh, I made $500,000. But you had $8,000 in your bank account and they say there's no evidence that the like $500,000 loan was made. I, I made, I made, I can guarantee you that I made the financial loans to my campaign that are on the record. Today, Santos blasting the bipartisan committee, calling the report biased and a disgusting, politicized smear, yet announcing he would not seek a second term next year, saying his family deserved better, despite saying this just two weeks ago. So if they expel you and then they put someone else in the seat, you're going to run in 2024. Absolutely. Now, in order to reach that two-thirds majority to expel George Santos, we are calculating about 50 Republicans need to switch their positions from opposing the expulsion to supporting it. And if he were expelled, this would be an unprecedented event. The only other five members who have been expelled from the House in U.S. history either were convicted of a crime or were kicked out because they were fighting with the Confederacy. Jake. Mm. Manaraju, thanks so much. To be clear... Congressman Santos is not resigning. He plans to serve out the rest of his term. Republicans lead the committee behind today's scathing report. Why didn't the report recommend that Santos be expelled from Congress? I will ask a Republican on that committee next. All right. We made it here. And we're back sticking with our politics lead. That damning House Ethics Committee report on Republican Congressman George Santos of New York concluding that the congressman used campaign funds for personal uses, including paying off his personal credit card debt. Would that that was the worst one on the list. With me now is Congressman David Joyce. He's a member of the House Ethics Committee, which issued the report. Congressman, uh, your committee chairman, uh, Congressman Michael Guest, is expected to make a motion as soon as tomorrow to expel Congressman Santos from Congress. Uh, That is a rare occurrence. Um, Do you support the move to expel Congressman Santos? And do you think ultimately... Uh, he will be kicked out of Congress. Well, thank you for the time, Jake. Uh, you know, I was the chair of this investigative subcommittee, and we, fin- we finished our report, uh, and we didn't come to the conclusion necessarily that uh, for expulsion, because to do so would have required us basically to have a trial and give him an opportunity. Uh, and since he was pretty much an impediment to his own investigation. He wasn't helping in any way, shape, or form. We didn't predict that he would be very helpful moving forward. So uh, the idea was to wrap up a report because we knew the tensions were brewing among New York delegation and other folks that he shouldn't be there. And I certainly, for one, as part of the subcommittee, uh, felt that the information that we'd already received was enough to show that basically the man's whole life is a lie. So are you, will, if there's a motion to expel him, will you vote for it? Well, sir, I may have to run that investigation on the floor because technically on the floor he's going to have to have a, uh, he'll be allowed to provide a defense. And so I don't want to consider to be prejudging him if I'm necessarily the prosecutor on it. But I think the, as you have laid out, and certainly Manu has laid out, uh, you know, the, the case against him is very strong. And uh, it gives people the opportunity to have the evidence there in front of them. Because one thing about a records case like this, records don't lie. I don't need them to tell me anything. I look at the numbers, the numbers speak to me, the numbers should speak to every member who reads that. He he said he did this, and the records show that he did not. Uh, right. he, he supposedly put in loans. He had a pretty good scam going. I mean, really, uh, he was scamming his campaign. He was scamming his office. He was scamming the, the people from New York 3 that elected him. 
Let's take through some of the, the ways your committee found uh, he, he spent his campaign funds on. Um, he spent campaign funds on uh, Las Vegas hotel charges uh, when he told his campaign he was on his honeymoon, uh, more than $3,000 on an Airbnb uh, when he said he was off at the Hamptons. He paid off his personal credit card bills, uh, a $4,000 purchase at Hermes, um, obviously OnlyFans, um, which uh, I understand you just learned about what that is. Uh, congratulations uh, on just learning about what that is. Um, just to make it, just to be clear here, when members of Congress um, come come to Washington, they're told they're not allowed to spend campaign funds on things like this, right? Absolutely. I mean, one should understand that without having to be told. But the idea that he was not only defrauding investors to his campaign. He created another agency, Red Strategies, uh, that uh, he, Redstone Strategies, that he was then telling people to put money into that was supposedly going to do outside spending on his campaign in excess of what a, a, an individual donation would be. And then he was taking that money out to pay his uh, uh, back himself or pay himself to do whatever. And then he was also taking money that he supposedly lent to his campaign, which wasn't true, falsifying the records to increase the amount uh, that, that would appear to be on hand to show that he was a viable candidate in order to get help from the NRCC and other agencies or other groups, outside groups, to help him, and then repaid himself from the loans that he never put in the bank, put into his candidacy in the first place. So he had scams working all over his, uh, his campaign, and he's basically a fraud that doesn't deserve to hold the title of congressman. Is there any, I mean, this is really quite, it's really quite something. What do you think is the worst thing he did, if, if I can ask you, because there's, I mean, there's a lot there. Um, what, what's the most offensive offense? Well, running. <laughs> I mean, you, when he ran for Congress in the first time, his own campaign put together an oppo report on himself. He knew he had all these issues. And he continued to lie about it and make up more things as he went on and went into 22 campaign and continued the, the same scam and basically perfected them. So he made a way, his living off of campaigning and talking other people fraudulently into donating either to what they thought was an outside expenditure or to his campaign and his lifestyle. And he wasn't going to leave. I came to that conclusion that he's making a buck 74 now would appear to be the most he's ever made in his life. So he, he's going to stick around until he gets thrown out. And I leave it up to uh, the rest of the uh, members in Congress to read the report and be there when uh, Chairman Guest files his motion. Quite a thing. Quite a thing. I think it was Leslie Jones who said, do you know what you have to do to be known as the unethical congressman? Congressman David Joyce, thank you so much. Really, really, really appreciate your time and your service on the Ethics Committee. Well, Mano will have quite a book out of this. All right. Thanks so much, sir. Good to see you, as always. We often hear about the wars in Ukraine and Israel, uh, but there are lots of conflicts going around the world. Uh, Another conflict has also killed thousands. It's a conflict where military forces are accused of burying civilians alive and where refugees describe systemic rape and being, quote, sold like cattle. A CNN investigation is next. Stay with us. A civil war between Sudan's military and a paramilitary group is creating, according to the United Nations, a catastrophic humanitarian crisis in the region. This has been going on for seven months now, and the UN says around 9,000 people have been killed. In recent weeks, the paramilitary group that I'm referring to, RSF, or Rapid Support Forces, 
has made a significant advance in the western Sudanese region of Darfur, where it has reportedly killed more than 700 people over the course of several days. Now, CNN's Nema Albagar and her team traveled to the neighboring country, Chad, where thousands of people have fled since the beginning of the war. And there they spoke with refugees who detailed unimaginable depravity, some describing systematic rape and being sold like cattle. We must warn you, the images and the subject of the report we're about to show you are quite disturbing. A scene all too familiar in West Darfur. Social media footage widely circulated last week showing RSF soldiers and supporting militia rounding up men. Harassing them, threatening them. CNN has been able to geolocate these videos, placing them in Ardamata, an outlying district of El Jinena, the capital of West Darfur where some of the worst atrocities during the recent war have taken place. Over the last year during the war in Sudan, the RSF have targeted members of African tribal groups, including the Masalit, who claimed Darfur as their ancestral land. Many of the RSF belong to tribes which, unlike the Masalit, claim Arab ancestry. What we are about to show you is very disturbing. These are the most recent images emerging from Darfur. What you are looking at is a mass grave filled with over a dozen bodies. Some are alive, others clearly dead. One man can be seen throwing earth on top of another, even though he is still alive. A man off camera can be heard shouting as someone appears from beneath a pile of dirt. He quickly buries his head back into the earth. We don't know the fate of these men. It's also unclear whether the men seen in the ditch are the same men as those in the video running from RSF soldiers and militia loyal to the RSF. But it does illustrate the newest, most horrific pattern of violence in the region. Communication in Darfur has been deliberately choked by the RSF. It's been excruciatingly hard to understand exactly what's happening there. A few months ago, we traveled to a refugee camp in Adre, Chad, where survivors and eyewitnesses of these brutal attacks were able to cross the border. One by one, brave survivors came forward wanting to share, to document what has happened to them, describing the horrors from the city of El Jinena, stories of rape and enslavement. From within our family, we lost more than 40 men. They said to my father, we're going to rape your daughter in front of you. The RSF said, leave these ones, we will find better ones to sell. These ones, let's rape them. Textbook ethnic cleansing. These are the hallmarks of genocide. CNN interviewed over a dozen survivors and eyewitnesses in Algenena, where civilians were targeted and where women were being sold from slave houses. There were RSF soldiers outside, and they beat me until they forced me into the building. Inside, I saw nine or ten girls, some without clothes. They told us they will sell us very cheaply. They said, we kill all the men. We will not leave any black skin here. You have to leave. Get out. They said they will be the only ones to sleep with us, because if we have our own children, our sons will one day take revenge. 
She managed to escape but was recaptured and brought to a different location where she was repeatedly raped. But it's not just women being affected. Mahdi, who's only 16, was kidnapped by the RSF with his brother and forced to work at a farm. The word slave in Arabic is a racial slur, equivalent to the N-word, so we're bleeping it out in his testimony. Mahdi doesn't know how much they bought him for, but he was eventually taken to another location where he was forced to work. He says his brother taken at the same time was killed by the RSF. Survivor after survivor told CNN how the RSF spoke of wiping out the African descendant Masalit. It's Masalit ancestral land in Darfur that the RSF are currently occupying. Part of a fertile landmass that the commander of the RSF has been strategically looking to secure for the last 20 years, changing the demographics from African to Arab. Ni'mal Bagher, CNN, London. And our thanks, as always, to CNN's Ni'mal Bagher. Make plans now to watch Nima's uh, full report on the whole story, Going Home, the War in Sudan. That will be this Sunday night at 9 Eastern, right here, only here on CNN. Coming up, what Israel now claims is video evidence of the hidden Hamas operation under the largest hospital in Gaza, the video just in this afternoon. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a major lawsuit just in against one of the biggest names in music, hip-hop mogul Sean Combs, also known as Puffy, also known as P. Diddy. The singer Cassie is accusing him of rape and years of abuse. The court filing just coming in. We'll break it down. Plus, the prison sentence today for the man convicted of breaking into the house of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and violently beating her husband, with a hammer. We'll tell you about that too. Leading this hour, however, new video from the Israeli military showing what it claims is proof that the terrorist group Hamas has an underground operation under Gaza's largest hospital. 
CNN's Oren Lieberman reports for us from Tel Aviv, where Israeli officials are feeling the pressure to provide concrete evidence that supports its siege of Al-Shifa Hospital. Tonight, the Israeli military publishing video of what it says is an operational tunnel inside the Al-Shifa Hospital complex. The IDF has been operating around the complex for days, closing in on what they long asserted was a hub of Hamas activity. AK-47s, we see handcuffed. Doctors and health officials in the Hamas-run enclave had denied those accusations. But this, the Israeli military says, And this is where they choose to hide everything. is part of the evidence they had promised as the IDF continues its operation in the hospital complex that began early Wednesday morning. It's not just the credibility of the IDF and Israel that's at stake. President Joe Biden said he feels absolutely confident that Hamas is there as the U.S. throws its weight behind Israel. The first war crime is being committed by Hamas by having their headquarters, their military, hidden under a hospital. On Thursday, Gaza again found itself under a total communications blackout, according to a U.N. agency, this time due to fuel shortages. Many hospitals in Gaza have already shut down as the medical system collapses. Getting updates from inside has become more difficult by the day. Israel may now be preparing to expand its ground operations. After previously telling Gazans to evacuate from the north, leaflets dropped in South Gaza Wednesday warned people to move and head towards known shelters. Today in their leaflets, they are telling us to evacuate to the south, which means that there is no safe place today. International calls for a break in the fighting have grown. The UN Security Council passed a resolution pushing for humanitarian pauses, and the European Union urged Israel to temper its military actions. I understand your rage, but let me ask you not to be consumed by rage. I think that uh, that's what the best friend of Israel can tell you. In Israel, demands to the Israeli government to facilitate the release of hostages held by Hamas in Gaza are growing. The families of the hostages continued their march toward Jerusalem, stopping at the home of Noah Marciano, who died in Gaza. Her mother demanded to hear from the government where the negotiations stand. Bring Noah and everyone else home now. We will not stop fighting until Noah and all of the hostages and everyone will return home now, now, now. And shortly before uh, the IDF released the video you saw at the beginning of the piece, they released a statement that Judith Weiss, a 65-year-old grandmother who was kidnapped on October 7th, had been found killed inside Gaza. Though the IDF did not mention a specific cause of death, the IDF spokesperson says she had been murdered by Hamas. Her body, they say, was found near the Al-Shifa complex, along with AK-47s and rocket-propelled grenades. Her husband, Shmuel, was killed in the attack itself on October 7th. Jake. All right, CNN's Orrin Lieberman in Tel Aviv. Thanks so much. In California, an arrest in what police call the homicide of a Jewish protester earlier this month. 69-year-old Paul Kessler uh, died hours after falling and hitting his head. Kessler was at a protest involving both pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian groups. Kessler was involved in a sort of physical incident, a confrontation. CNN's Stephanie Elam is in Los Angeles. And Stephanie, what more do we know about the person uh, arrested and the charges? Well, we... We have his name to begin with, Jake. He's a 50-year-old man. His name is Loe Alnaji. Uh, and this is someone that we've seen in images uh, from that 
incident and that date. The problem is law enforcement officials are saying that they did not have uh, any video from exactly what led up to this altercation, but they did believe that something went on between these two and they were not clear of that. Uh, so he was right there on the scene when pictures that we have seen. He's now been arrested this morning on involuntary manslaughter um, and his bail has been set at $1 million. Uh, law enforcement still asking the community for information on what happened. We know that whatever happened, Paul Kessler fell backwards, hit his head, and then hours later died from those injuries. That's what we do know. We do know that it was a pro-Palestinian uh, demonstration that was happening and that there were some pro-Jewish, uh, pro-Israel uh, protesters that showed up. And that's where this altercation happened early in this month. Uh, November 5th is the day that happened. As for the district attorney, they're saying they're finalizing the review of this case and that uh, their charging uh, issue will be declared later on, probably today. We've also learned about El Naji that he worked for the Ventura County Community College District. They say effective immediately, he has been placed on administrative leave. So some details coming out of the, obviously though, this is just horrible news of someone dying during a protest like this. Jake. All right, a homicide investigation and arrest. Stephanie Elam, thanks so much. The flashpoints over the Israel-Hamas war lit up on the streets last night in D.C. as protesters calling for a ceasefire clashed with Capitol Police outside the Democratic Party's national headquarters. Activists claim uh, they were being peaceful and had been assaulted by law enforcement. Capitol Police are defending their actions. And the group was not peaceful. Six officers were injured with one person arrested for assaulting an officer. Some of the protest organizers held a virtual news conference this morning. They argued uh, that they only wanted to be heard. Democratic leadership in the Democratic Party is not aligned and is not listening to us. And so we can't, we went last night um, arm in arm to sing, to again, light uh, candles in memory of the dead um, and to attempt to engage actually with Democratic leadership uh, as they were coming into the building. Now, some of those there last night, not all, but some of those there, at least according to their own tweets, were with the New York branch of a group called Democratic Socialists of America. You might remember that's the same group that on October 7th, immediately after the attacks, attempted to justify the Hamas terrorist attacks as, quote, resistance. And this push from activists on the left, including the Hamas-supporting far-left, adds more pressure on President Biden as he tries to navigate how he continues U.S. support for Israel while trying to push Netanyahu to the center for a post-war world. Here is President Biden last night. I can't tell you how long it's going to last, but I can tell you I don't think it ultimately ends until there's a two-state solution. I made it clear to the Israelis I think it's a big mistake for them to think they're going to occupy Gaza and maintain Gaza. As Israel intensifies its assault on Gaza and innocent Palestinians are killed, these divisions at home are likely to widen and they will increasingly pose a political challenge to President Biden that could last up to and through Election Day. He is facing outrage from the far left. And now images of their confrontations with Capitol Police reminiscent in some ways, let's, we shouldn't overemphasize it, but reminiscent of scenes from January 6th could undermine Democrats' condemnation of Trump and Republicans' role interfering with the 2020 vote. That's what Democrats are afraid of at any rate. Turning to our tech lead, here is something many of us did not see coming. 
Osama bin Laden, the late al-Qaeda terrorist leader, who orchestrated the 9-11 attacks. His words are going viral on TikTok. I'm not joking. This is true. Bin Laden's infamous two-decade-old letter to America, where he attempts to justify killing near, nearly 3,000 innocent people, is apparently resonating with some young Americans, ill-informed people on TikTok. Some are going so far as to praise bin Laden's words. The White House telling CNN today there is never a justification for spreading bin Laden's, quote, repugnant, evil, and anti-Semitic lies. All this amid the polarization already being caused by the Israel-Hamas war. CNN's Donio Sullivan is here to put this into context for us, if, if you can. I don't know if you can. That's a challenge for you. It's a lot to unpack here, Jake. So let's take a step back. Why and how did this go viral? Uh, the why, I mean, the broader context here, of course, is what the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, we know younger generations, particularly a lot of people on TikTok, uh, are far more sympathetic towards the Palestinian cause, even at some points Hamas, than, than older generations uh, in the United States. So that's the kind of context of what is happening on TikTok. Um, over the past uh, few, about the past week or so, uh, this letter that purportedly written by Osama bin Laden um, and was released in 2002, uh, started circulating uh, online and was actually initially published by the Guardian newspaper uh, in the UK, which I think we have a screenshot of. The Guardian actually, uh, because so much traffic was yeah. going to that letter uh, from TikTok, the Guardian took it down. Perhaps not exactly a, a wise decision on the part of the Guardian because they said they took it down because there wasn't context around it. It was just the letter itself. Um, but, of course, that then spurred conspiracy theories that there was a kind of uh, cover-up going on about right. this letter, even though it's been published in books. Um, what then happened was people started reading this letter, TikTok discovered it. Uh, we're not going to show the videos of some of the young people who, who posted this, but we, we'll read out a little bit of, of what people were saying in the videos. One person who was a, a kind of New York-based lifestyle influencer, uh, she said in the video, if you have read it, let me know if you're going through an existential crisis in this very moment, because in the last 20 minutes, my entire viewpoint on the, my entire life, I've believed <coughs> the life I have lived has changed. Uh, another person saying, if we're going to call Osama bin Laden a terrorist, uh, so is the American government. Um, bizarre, crazy. I mean, a lot of these, a lot of people sharing this stuff, obviously, weren't born, um, weren't alive when 9-11 happened. That's, of course, not an excuse. Uh, but you can just really see there a total disconnect. And of course, I mean, this is, I think, young people who are trying to push back against maybe US government policy towards Israel. But you can find critiques um, of the US government online uh, without resorting to Osama bin Laden and, 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 and praising or sympathizing with the mastermind of the September 11th that's attacks. What, that's what's so weird. It's just like, have they not read any Chomsky? I mean, there's plenty of leftist critiques of American imperialism and corporatism, I mean, out there without going to a terrorist. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, this is, this is much, I think this is a, a, a symptom of a, of a much bigger you know, issue that's happening in this country right now. Pew Research Center had, had new survey details out yesterday showing just how many more young people are getting their, their news from TikTok rather right. than anywhere else. Uh, I should mention TikTok in their defense, they've been pushing back. They're saying this kind of content promoting this letter um, is, against their, is against their rules and it says they are taking it down. They also kind of have a go at the media and others saying the number of videos on TikTok is small and reports of it trending on our platform are inaccurate. 
we mentioned, this is, uh, we've stated in our reporting, this is dozens of people. It's not hundreds of people or thousands of people sharing it. However, of the videos me and my team were able to find today, we were able to find dozens, and many of them have now either been removed or taken down. And the videos we found had more than 14 million views. So not insignificant. And if, right. we're, if we're able to find them, TikTok clearly isn't doing the job they're saying they're doing by that they're taking it down. Right. And we should note that this doesn't help their argument. And there are a lot of people on Capitol Hill say this is exactly the problem. They're controlled by the Chinese government. And these algorithms are meant to destroy our children's brains. No doubt. Uh, a lot of Republicans will pounce on that. Yes. Well, Democrats too. Tony yeah. O'Sullivan, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The breaking news in our pop lead. Sean Diddy Combs is being accused of rape and abuse in a brand new lawsuit just filed by his ex-girlfriend, Cassie Ventura, uh, stay with us. In our pop culture lead just in, producer and musician Sean Combs, also known as Diddy, is facing a new federal lawsuit. His former girlfriend is alleging that he raped her and subjected her to years of physical and other kinds of abuse. Let's bring in CNN's Gene Casares. Gene, walk us through the other allegations laid out in this law. Well, these are serious. These are really, really serious. First of all, this is a civil case. It's filed in federal court in New York, the District Court of the Southern District of New York. And it's under the Adult Survivors Act, which is just about to expire, but it allows someone that has allegations of this nature far in the past to bring this civil action for monetary damages. That is the justice at this point. But this young woman at the time, her name was Cassie Ventura. It was 2005. She was 19 years old and she met and became the girlfriend and employee, she alleges, of Sean Diddy Combs of his mega record label. She was a singer herself. But she goes on to say that during this time that she was abused she was a part of the cycle of violence, physical and sexual abuse. There was uncontrollable rage. Some of the specifics she says, she says that she was raped in her own home when she tried to leave him, that she was often beaten, kicked, punched, stomped on, resulting in bruises and burst lips, black eyes and bleeding, that he blew up a man's car at one point when he thought that that man was interested in her, that he introduced her to a lifestyle of excessive alcohol, substance abuse, and required her to produce illicit prescriptions to satisfy his own addictions. Now, there are always two sides to every story, and his attorney has released a statement to CNN, which reads, in part, Mr. Combs denies these offenses and outrageous allegations. For the past six months, Mr. Combs has been subjected to Ms. Ventura's persistent demand of $30 million under the threat of writing a damaging book about their relationship, which was unequivocally rejected as blatant blackmail, baseless and outrageous lies aiming to tarnish Mr. Combs' reputation and simply seeking a payday. So this has just been filed. Discovery will begin. But of course, this is filed in New York. They are residents of California, but you've got Epic Records as a defendant, as well as his own record company himself, uh, Bad Boy Records. So we'll see where this goes. Wow, stunning. All right, Gene Casares, thanks so much. Thank now you. in our Law and Justice League today, the man that violently beat former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, with a hammer, was found guilty in federal court. David DePap now faces decades in prison, as well as a state trial where charges include attempted murder. Joining us now, former Assistant Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and CNN National Security Analyst, Julia Kayyem. Julia, thanks for joining us. So DePap admitted he was the attacker. The question was always, what was his intent? 
Uh, and that was a big part of what the jury had to consider today. Right. And then they didn't consider for long. In other words, and they, they they come back just a couple hours later. And the question for them was, is, is this a federal crime or is this just a, you know, an attack and assault? So the federal crime that they are looking at has the words, you know, uh, was the target against a federal official in their federal official capacity. So what uh, what the defendant was trying to convince the jury uh, to, to, to believe is that he just happened to show up in Nancy Pelosi's house. He wants her and that's and he has admitted that he wants to target her. And then Paul Pelosi is just sort of a a bystander. No, it doesn't work that way. He clearly is a family member. He's in the home. The home is hers and his. Uh, and he was there to uh, target uh, uh, her in her official capacity. And that would extend to Paul Pelosi. It, to me, this was, um, you know, it maybe took two hours too long. This was so obviously just an attempt for them to get out of federal charges uh, because it has a higher sentence. There was a pretty immediately a flurry of conspiracy theories after Paul yeah. Pelosi was attacked, being floated uh, by prominent right wing politicians. Um, and D Donald Trump continues to make light of it um, yeah. rather disgustingly. Is this usual? Is this typical when it comes to politically related violence like this? It it is. I thought this case was really interesting and something to watch out for. As 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 I as you and I have been talking as we head towards twenty twenty four, because we've seen nothing yet. Is is the extent to which um, that we are the uh, pape is is enters this world through Gamergate. So Gamergate is, as many people remember, is a very sexist sort of or organization of, of guys who are online gaming and they don't like women who are in the industry or who are criticizing the glorification of rape and sexual abuse and everything. They uh, the, These guys start to target these women online and it's called Gamergate. So Depep enters through game, Gamergate and remembers that this entry just then per, serves as a gateway drug to uh, to something worse. And and Steve Bannon, uh, Trump's advisor uh, at one stage, uh, has often said that he grabs people in the in the sort of in in one world, like people who will be susceptible to incitement, to 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 this glorification of violence. And then through through the Internet and through bringing them into things like QAnon and stuff, they then become violent. And so people may start off benign and end up, you know, attacking Paul Pelosi. Julia Kayyem, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, speaking of violence, my reporting on some of the most damning allegations about what Hamas did during the October 7th terrorist attack. And, and these are claims that you might not have heard much about. That's next. The other day, a member of Congress sent me a clip from back in her home district where a Muslim American leader was attacking her accusing her of lying because she had mentioned that Hamas had committed rapes against civilians on October 7th. Of course, it is not a lie. It is an ugly fact, though the rapes have not gotten as much attention as the murders. Israeli authorities have only recently begun their investigations into these atrocities. But sadly, often the evidence has been lost along with the victims. A warning, the story we're about to show you contains graphic content, and it assuredly will be disturbing to most viewers. 
In the aftermath of the October 7th attacks by Hamas, Israel's focus immediately turned to war and to identifying the bodies of those slaughtered by Hamas in Israel's largest mass casualty attack. But now Israel is launching an investigation into allegations of rape and other forms of sexual violence on that deadly day. Israeli police are starting to build rape cases, relying on eyewitness testimony, video, and forensic evidence, as well as Hamas interrogations. Dr. Kochav El-Kayam Levy, named chair of the Civil Commission on October 7th Crimes by Hamas Against Women and Children, points to one reason why the investigations have been so difficult. We'll never know everything that has happened to them. We know that most women who were raped and who were sexually assaulted were also murdered. And it will take time, even in other atrocities, it takes time until the crimes against women are revealed, until survivors even share their stories. Still, CNN found witnesses to the atrocities and their aftermath. G, a paramedic in Israel's elite 669 Special Tactics Rescue Unit, went house to house in Kibbutz Be'eri, one of the sites of the worst massacres. He did not want to be identified on camera. While we're storming through those houses, one of the doors uh, I open, it's a bedroom. I see two girls, two teenagers, uh, I guess 13 or 14 years old. One is lying on the floor, one is lying on a bed. One on the floor, she's lying on her stomach. Her pants are pulled down towards her knees. And there's a... a bullet wound on her the back side of her neck near her head and there's a puddle of blood around her her head and there's remains of uh, of semen on the lower part of her back g says the other teenage girl also appeared to have been assaulted there's a bullet wound on the upper part of her chest and there's bruises all over her body so you know these are two girls that were just killed, executed, perhaps also raped in their own bedroom. Israeli police say the bodies at Shura, one of a handful of sites where dead bodies are brought for identification, show trauma consistent with rape and assault. Morgue workers say these women did not die peaceful deaths. Some of the women came in just with underwear, and the underwear was often bloody. They just Some of them had underwear on that was very bloody. And it, that was very difficult to see also. We also saw most of the people, the women were, were shot at least once in the body, but then they were shot in the head and they were shot in the head many times. And it often seemed to be gratuitous cruelty, abject cruelty, because it was seemed to have been done just to mutilate them. The women we saw were not just killed, they were cruelly, cruelly mutilated in many parts of their bodies. Women's groups say the humiliation women experienced as they were paraded through the street, thrown on the backs of motorcycles and degraded either before or after they were killed at the festival, that also constitutes gender-based violence. Here's what one Nova Festival organizer told us that he saw. What we found in the area, on the field, outside the safe zone, there is not a doubt about what uh, our uh, girls uh, went through, the terrorists. We found naked women stripped out without any clothes. Their legs were spread out. And uh, some of them were, were butchered. 
Israeli police acknowledge that the investigation is likely to take months. Tuesday, police held a press briefing in which one witness said she saw a gang rape. Quote, they bent someone over and I understood he was raping her. And then he was passing her on to someone else. She was alive. She stood on her feet and she was bleeding from her back. I saw that he was pulling her hair. She had long brown hair. I saw him chop off her breast. And then he was throwing it toward the road, tossed it to someone else, and they started playing with it. I remember seeing another person raping her. And while he was still inside her, he shot her in the head. Another shocking part of all of this to these women and investigators, the absence of international outrage, including a United Nations statement a week after these terrorist attacks that did not mention these accusations at all. As if the rape of Israeli women does not count as rape. It's much worse than just uh, silence or an insult uh, to us as Israeli women and to to our children and to our people. It's uh, when when they are failing to acknowledge us, to acknowledge what happened here. They they are failing humanity. Why would it be that the international community? and the United Nations would be silent about these crimes. They seem to be vocal about so much else. Coming up next, an American woman who spent nearly a month stuck in Gaza during this conflict. She was forced to leave her Palestinian family behind. She's going to join me right here in the studio right after the break to tell me how they are doing back in Gaza, what they are experiencing, what they need, and the nightmare they are going through. Stay with us. In our world, Lee, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza right now is so dire, so dire, the UN's World Food Program says people there are, quote, facing an immediate possibility of starvation. The U.S. State Department says that nearly 700 American citizens, legal permanent residents, and family members have been able to get out. That's a story you know we've been following since uh, October 7th. But there are millions of Palestinians uh, in Gaza who cannot leave. And joining us now is Haneen Okal. You might remember... Her and her brother's stories that we've been telling on the lead. She's a Palestinian-American who, after going through a painstaking ordeal for more than three weeks, has, has been able to get out of Gaza with her three children, along with her brother, Abood, and his wife and son. They did have to leave so many family members behind who are not Americans. Uh, and, and Hanin, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, again, um, you, have, you were able to get out with your eight-year-old, mm-hmm. two-year-old, mm-hmm. and two-month-old, I guess now three-month-old, Yes. And everyone's good? Everyone is good. Okay. Do they have, are the the kids doing all right? Because that can be very traumatic. The bombs and the, I don't know if, I mean, the two-year-old probably didn't know how scary it was, but they could probably detect how scared you were. Are they okay? Are they sleeping through the night? Are they? They are okay, but others are still not okay. The ones that are stuck back in Gaza. Yes, those and everyone else, as well as the whole, the whole civilians, the whole Palestinians who are living there in Gaza, are suffering right now. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Jack, for having me in your show. Of course. Um, Tell me about your parents. They're stuck there. My parents are still stuck there. My family members, the relatives, uh, my cousins, uh, my brothers, siblings, uh, all the civilians in Gaza. I want to talk about them specifically because... Uh, as you see now, um, what's happening is, is a, a human 
catastrophe. Yeah. It's, it's seriously what's going on in there ha has to make no sense. People are suffering. People are dying. Um, bombing is everywhere. It's not only uh, a specific uh, part or group of people. Bombing, they are bombing Israel. Unfortunately, they are bombing hospitals. They are bombing houses. They are bombing um, everywhere. They are bombing um, like premature babies now are dying slowly because of incubators are not functioning. Premature babies has to do nothing with this. Like they are innocent people. Um, they are bombing uh, churches, hospitals. Um, Tell me about your parents. Where are they right now? My parents now in Rafah, they flee from north to south, as well as so many thousands of Palestinians, two million people. We are talking about two million people now. Uh, Do they get less food? Less than that, because yeah. um, there is lackness of food, lackness of electricity, lackness of water now. Um, it's like a siege. Israel military is forcing people in this, forcing the, a, a siege, it's like a cage. No medicine, no water, no electricity. They're doing the, all the bombing while cutting off everything else. Um, people are suffering because of, you know, lackness of, of everything that yeah. a human being needs to survive. When I was in Gaza, I was thinking, how am I going to survive? And now look at all those civilians. They have to do nothing with what's going on. It must have been crazy because you were, you were literally, because I remember talking to your brother, uh, texting with your brother, and it was literally, how am I going to get food for my family today? Yes, it's not only about food. Do you know that in hospitals, hospitals are shutting down now. Yeah. Hospitals, doctors are performing operations without medicine. Without anesthesia. Uh, absolutely. And premature babies, as I told you about, uh, they're, they're, they're dying slowly. Thousands of people are trapped under the rubble, dying slowly. Uh, nobody can reach them. The Red Cross are not able to help. Uh, nobody can reach them. There is no fuel, you know, for, for anything. To, to the, the blackout of electricity is a big problem now. And this has to has an end. We are calling for a ceasefire, for an immediate ceasefire, not just only a five-day ceasefire. And I'm sorry to say that, but the U.S. government bear uh, the responsibility of this violence, of this uh, uh, genocide. They need to stop sending weapons for Israel military. They need to stop sending money for this war. For, for the Israel military, they need to stop sending. Every single year, they send $4 billion to the U.S. military. To, to what? To kill innocent people in Gaza? To kill civilians? To kill premature babies? It is a nightmare to be a pregnant woman now in Gaza. Do you know that? C-sections are being done without uh, medicine. And uh, everything... Everything is happening now is against uh, human rights. It's, it's a disaster. It's a catastrophe. And what, this thing didn't happen only last month. It's been happening for decades. Israeli, uh, since the establishment of Israel, Palestinians didn't have one day of safety, one day of feeling safe or feeling uh, free. For 16 years, Palestinians in Gaza has been under siege. Uh, has been under, has been in this... You're talking about the blockade? Yes. Yeah, the blockade, Egypt and Israel uh, started a blockade in 2007, 
when uh, Hamas was elected, yeah. Yes, but again, civilians has to do nothing with this. Right. Civilians are innocent people. Nobody, everyone there wants to live peacefully. Everyone there wants a future. Everyone lost a family member or lost uh, uh, hundreds of family members and relatives. People want just to live peacefully. And uh, I, uh, I think that la what all Palestinians want, a lasting solution, which won't happen unless everybody has a permanent, immediate, permanent ceasefire. It's not just a five-day ceasefire. I think Palestinians are losing their homes, yeah. are losing their land. They have my family, my parents, my grandparents, back to 1948, they were forced and they were driven out of their homes and their lands. Now the history is repeating itself again. Gazans in Gaza, they are doing the same thing. Israel is doing the same thing, fleeing people from north to south. And do you think this is enough for them? No. They're still bombing people in the south. Honey, thank you so much for being here. And I hope that your family is safe. I hope this war ends soon. I hope that there will be a two-state solution and the Palestinian people have human rights and dignity and a future without Hamas and with an Israeli government that respects the Palestinian people and with a Palestinian government that respects... Safety and freedom for all. Safety exactly. and freedom for 100%. all. hundred percent. But Israel has to understand that you cannot, dis like, you cannot do this to Palestinians. Palestinians have the, the right to live peacefully in their land. Right? Inshallah. Good to see you. Thank you so much thank for being you, here, Jack and I'm so glad. And I'm so thank glad you. you and your family are well. Thank you, Honey call Thank you, and love to Abud and his family. Thank you so we'll be right back. Much. And we are back with our 2024 lead. A new CNN poll shows former South Carolina Governor and UN Ambassador Nikki Haley moving into second place among likely voters ahead of New Hampshire's Republican presidential primary. Former President Trump, of course, still has a significant lead over his rivals. He's got 42 percent. Nikki Haley pulling into second with 20 percent. Former Governor Chris Christie is the only other candidate polling in the double digits. He's at 14%. Let us discuss with our panel. Josh, uh, Haley's rise has been attributed to her strong debate performances. She's still got a long way to go to catch up with Trump, but her numbers are going in the right direction. What do you think? Going in the right direction, but it's still half as much as Trump. I mean, it strikes me the extent to which we're literally replaying the 2016 primary <laughs> with Nikki Haley as Marco Rubio, Chris Christie as John Kasich, and, uh, John, and Ron DeSantis as Ted Cruz. Like, the same vote shares, the same portions of the GOP electorate and setting up for the same result in New Hampshire where you have Donald Trump going away and then, you know, a few people sort of... You know, but who teams. doesn't like reruns? I mean, I still go home, I watch MASH, I watch uh, Cheers, yeah. I watch Friends. They keep making the same movies over and over again. <laughs> Seriously, mm -hmm. I mean, like... It's comforting. But uh, <laughs> you, you strike me as a potential Nikki Haley voter. What do you mean by that? Is that possible? No, I am. I, I, I like Nikki Haley. She's had some... She's made some mistakes. I was... We're all, fallible, We're okay. all fallible, Essie. We're all fallible. We're all human. No, I was critical today of her social media proposal because it's super dangerous. Um, but no, uh, she has been distinguishing herself via her age. Um, she's youth. Her youth, yes, yes, yes. Um, yes. yes she's she's she she wasn't at D-Day, okay, and that distinguishes <laughs> her from lots of other people, the current president and other people right. running for president. But also, she's yeah, presented a softer image on abortion recognizing that that is a very toxic issue for Republicans. So she has been trying to distinguish herself. And I think if you're looking for an alternative to Trump, she looks pretty good. You know, and Congressman Rose, I have to say, like, poll after poll after poll shows Nikki Haley 
a much stronger candidate against mm-hmm. Biden than any of the others. Sure. That doesn't seem to be an argument that holds any sway uh, with Republican voters. They don't seem to care yeah. about it, but it is right there and it's in numerous polls. And if it was just Haley versus Trump, I do believe Nikki Haley could win the primary. What's shocking about all of this is that there's no Barack Obama in the Republican Party. You go back to 2020 when there was this crowded Democratic primary. Barack Obama stepped in, had private conversations with Amy Klobuchar, people to judge. And what do you know, within 24 hours, everybody drops out and Joe Biden is coronated. Right, because it became a two-man race between Biden and Bernie, and then Bernie lost. Exactly. There's no one right now in the Republican Party that's either capable of doing that or willing to do that. And that may be the very reason why Donald Trump won the primary in both 2016 and will win again this time. Why isn't there anybody willing to do that? Because the voters wouldn't be willing to go along with it. I mean, Ron, it's, it's again the 2016 replay. Ron DeSantis's strategy in this campaign has been to get to, to the right of Donald Trump in every way that he can, saying, you know, Trump's not a true conservative. Here's this record of all this really right-wing stuff that I've gotten through the legislature in Florida. A lot of his voters, if he wasn't there, they wouldn't go for Nikki Haley. They would go for Trump. Similarly, Haley's, Haley's voters, it's, you know, it's uh, so a lot of the more establishment figures find Ron DeSantis as odious as Donald Trump is for a lot of the same reasons they found Ted Cruz odious. So the problem is that, you know, you have Trump at 42 there in New Hampshire. If you had a one-on-one, I don't believe Haley would win that primary. And I don't believe- Oh, you she, don't? No, and I don't think she would win the nomination against Trump either. I think Trump would have a majority of the party because, I mean, the problem for Republicans and the problem for the country is that most Republican voters find Donald Trump to be at least acceptable and often very appealing. I think that's that's why he's likely to win. But Nikki's year. sort of like the House. She's going to need Democrat. You know, she's going to need disaffected Democrats. She's going to need independents. She's going to need moderates. You're right. She's not going to win the base of the Republican Party, whether there's eight people in the primary or just two. She's going to need to bring over some folks in the middle and maybe even the left, folks who are annoyed at Joe Biden or don't have confidence in him. I think she might be able to do that. So I want to play some sound from a hearing back in September. I mean, this is old sound, old-ish sound. It's from Senator Tuberville. And the reason, I have to be honest, I missed this. And my wife, who's more amazing than me, which is not difficult, but she is very amazing. (laughs) And she said, did you ever see this sound from Senator Tuberville, who is obviously still in the news because he's still blockading all these promotions and and the like. And he said said this, uh, and I want to just run the sound. And and because you're a veteran, I want to get your reaction to it. This is Senator Tuberville um, blockading um, all these promotions. Let's run it. Well, there's nobody more military up here than me, but uh, you know, I just hope we can work this out. Uh, as far as I could tell, there's at least four of us, maybe more, that served in the United States military. So I take great exception. So, uh, Congressman Rose, uh, you have a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star. You were a platoon leader in Afghanistan. And I'm wondering what you think about um, Senator Tuberville who never served a day in the military, saying that there is nobody more military than him. He's such a loser. (laughs) But what's what's shocking about all of this is how, it's not just offensive, we all know that this is offensive, not just to veterans like me, but to the families of those who have fallen. But what he is actually right now is a threat to national security. There are hundreds of officers who are right now contemplating early retirement 
because he's preventing their promotion. Hundreds of officers who are now in deep pain, not just them, but their families because of his actions. And the United States of America is less secure. He's a walking threat to national security. But there's nobody more military than him. <laughs> he should resign. I don't understand what your problem is. There's no. OK, we'll be right back. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court decided to continue blocking Florida from enforcing its law limiting drag shows. The law makes it a misdemeanor to knowingly admit a child to a sexually explicit adult live performance that would be obscene for, quote, the age of the child present. The law was a priority for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who signed the law in May. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcast. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer. He's in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 